0: scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verse 22, and Genesis 50, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Genesis 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. Uh, Good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through Hebrews chapter 11, called By Faith. And each week we're looking at one of the Old Testament saints that that chapter mentions. And we've been looking at their faith, considering our own faith, and then always looking to the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at Joseph. And I want to do something a little bit different, since the kids are in here with us today. I want to use this introduction time uh, of the sermon to read a story to the kids about Joseph from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know that's unusual. We haven't probably done that before. Um, but if you would normally be going to your kids' class, I'm going to invite you in a second to come on up and join me by this chair as I read the story. All right. Microphone under the mask. We'll see, see how this goes. Can you guys hear me okay in the front? Great. So I'm going to read a story from the Jesus Storybook Bible about Joseph. And that's what the whole sermon is going to be about, actually. But you guys are getting a sneak peek from Jesus Storybook Bible. Jacob had 12 sons, but of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. One day, Jacob gave Joseph a splendid new robe. It was beautiful and rich with all the colors of the rainbow, but it made Joseph's brothers jealous. They wanted a rich rainbow robe too. Then, to make matters worse, Joseph kept on having these special dreams. I dreamed I was the greatest. I was king, Joseph told his brothers, and you all bowed down to me. Now, I'm sure you know even if Joseph didn't, that telling your brothers things like that isn't a very good idea. Joseph's brothers hated him even more. They wanted to kill Joseph and his dreams. And one day, that's exactly what they tried to do. They tore Joseph's rainbow robe off of him and sold him to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. The traders took Joseph to Egypt and made him into a slave. The brothers went home and lied to their father, telling him that Joseph was dead. That's the end of that dreamer, they thought. But they were wrong. God had a magnificent dream for Joseph's life, and even when it looked like everything had gone wrong, God would use it all to help make the dream come true God would use everything that was happening to Joseph to do something good. Meanwhile, though, things were not looking good for Joseph in Egypt. He was far from home and from his dad. Then he got blamed for something he didn't do, and even though, even though he had done nothing wrong, and he was punished and thrown in jail. But God had not left Joseph. One night, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a scary dream about thin cows gobbling up fat cows. What on earth did it mean? He didn't know, but Joseph was a dream expert. And so Pharaoh sent for him. It means a famine is coming, Joseph explained. There won't be enough food. Pharaoh was so pleased by Joseph's skill that he immediately took Joseph out of jail and made him a prince. Now back home, Joseph's brothers had run out of food, and everyone was hungry. God's special family was in danger. If they didn't get food soon, they would starve to death. So Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to buy food. They came and knelt before the new prince. His brothers didn't know that the prince was Joseph. Joseph knew who they were. Joseph's dream, the one about his brothers bowing down to him, was coming true. "'It's me!' Joseph cried. When they saw it was Joseph, his brothers were afraid. They had wronged Joseph. They had sinned, and they knew it. Now Joseph would certainly punish them. But Joseph looked at his brothers, and his eyes filled with tears. Even though his brothers had hurt him and hated him and wanted him dead, in spite of everything, He couldn't stop loving them. His heart, which they had broken, filled up with love, and Joseph forgave them. Joseph threw his arms around them. Don't be afraid, he said, behind what you were doing, underneath everything that was happening, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. Joseph didn't punish them. He rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt. One day... God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break, like Joseph. He would leave his home, and his father, his brothers, would sell him for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad thing, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the world. Do you know who that prince was? Do you have any guesses? Joseph was the first prince. You have this book? Yeah, it's a good story. Well, that later prince was actually Jesus. He has a very similar story to Joseph. Well, thanks for being such good listeners. You guys can go back and sit with your parents. And if they stop paying attention during the sermon, you just tell them that you already know the story. Went better than I expected. Good job, kids. <laughs> well, now that the, uh, the children have gotten us off to a good start with the story of Joseph, we're going to continue with the rest of the sermon. And uh, like always, we'll have three points looking back at Joseph's life and then making our way to the end of his life in our passage in Genesis 50. And so those three points are going to be humiliation and exaltation, repentance and forgiveness, and then lastly, death and hope. So let's begin with our first point, humiliation and exaltation. I want you to think for a second, uh, what is your most embarrassing moment? When was a time where you were humiliated? And uh, while you're thinking, I'll share maybe not my most embarrassing moment, but a recent one. Um, Holly and I actually had someone over from church this week for a meal, and you know, before the meal was ready, Got everybody a glass of water, and we're standing around drinking our glasses of water. Then the food is ready, and so we all move to the table, taking our glasses with us. Except I actually forget to bring my glass with me, but I still go to the table to sit down to eat. And, you know, we pray, we begin eating, and then uh, I take a drink of water. and I think, wait a second. I don't have my glass of water, and it turns out I took a glass, a sip from the glass of our guest who was visiting us, which is already embarrassing under normal circumstances, but especially embarrassing after how much I assured this person we took COVID protocol seriously. Uh, But yes, a slight embarrassing story for me this week. But again, what is an embarrassing moment for you? When was a time where you were humiliated? Was it maybe a faux pas you committed in a social, social situation like me? Was it not knowing something that it seems like everybody else knew? Was it getting caught doing something that you should not have been doing? Was it everybody thinking that you did something that you actually didn't do? Embarrassment and humiliation happen in all sorts of ways. You heard in Joseph's story that I read to the kids that he faced humiliation a couple times. But it was mostly not his fault. Uh, First, his brothers sold him into slavery uh, for 20 pieces of silver. And yes, Joseph didn't do himself any favors by telling his brothers about this dream or they all bowed down before him. Uh, That was a pretty dumb move. But it didn't warrant being sold into slavery. Being sold into slavery is humiliating. Joseph went from a son in God's chosen family, Jacob's family, wearing the special robe, to being stripped of everything, including that robe, and probably walking in chains with a caravan making its way to Egypt. That's humiliating. Everybody would look at him now and wonder, what did he do wrong to find himself in such a position? What did Joseph do to deserve being sold into slavery? But second, his humiliation actually got worse. When he got to Egypt, the caravan sold him to an Egyptian official, Potiphar, who worked under Pharaoh. And Joseph, while working as a slave or a servant of Potiphar, he actually found some success. And so much so that Potiphar put him in charge of nearly everything. And he essentially became Potiphar's number two man, which made Joseph's second humiliation so much harder to swallow. If you're unfamiliar with the story... In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, and Genesis says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And so Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. But Joseph refuses her advances. He says, how can I do this against Potiphar? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph is noble. Joseph is faithful. Joseph refuses to sin against Potiphar, and more importantly, he refuses to sin against God. But Potiphar's wife does not stand down. She keeps trying to seduce him over and over again until one day when Joseph is trying to flee from her, she grabs his garment and pulls it off of him. But he just keeps on running without it. And suddenly Potiphar is, you know, home alone with his garment. And what does she do? She tells everybody that Joseph tried to seduce her and that this garment is proof that he was here and took his clothes off. She lies and pretends that Joseph was the seducer. And obviously Potiphar believes his wife and Joseph is thrown into prison. A second humiliation. Just when things seemed to be turning up, just when Joseph had begun to feel like he was going to be able to make the most out of this terrible situation, he's humiliated again, blamed for something he didn't do. Blamed for doing actually the opposite of what he tried to do. His steadfast devotion to God, his uh, devotion to fleeing from temptation, to fleeing from sin, was actually used against him. Everyone saw Joseph and thought that he had tried to seduce his master's wife. He was thrown into prison for something he didn't do. And so if we were to summarize Joseph's humiliation, it would be, one, that he was sold out for 20 pieces of silver— sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Two, he was blamed for something that he didn't do. Does that sound like anybody else? It sounds like Jesus. Jesus was sold for not 20 pieces of silver, but 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus took the punishment for things that he did not do. In so many ways, Joseph is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Joseph's humiliation prefigures Jesus's humiliation. But Jesus, the favorite son of God, living quite comfortably in heaven, actually willingly humiliated himself. Do you see how? Jesus willingly humiliated himself. He took on flesh. You know, he was born into a fallen world. He's God, comfortably in heaven, but he takes on flesh, is born into a fallen world, born into a poor family in a fallen world, and he's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And then it gets uh, even worse. He lives a perfectly righteous life and then takes on a punishment that he doesn't deserve, the wrath of God on sin. And he died the Most shameful and embarrassing and humiliating death that anyone could die. Crucifixion. Death on a cross being nailed to a tree. And then he died. He truly died, was buried, remained buried for a few days. The Son of God, God himself humiliated, but humiliated willingly, humiliated willingly for you. And that does two things for us. One, it makes Jesus empathetic to your humiliation, to your embarrassment, to your shame. He's been there. He knows what that's like. He knows what it feels like. You know, one of the worst parts about humiliation or embarrassment or shame is that you feel totally alone. You feel like you're the only one who feels like that. But if you're in Christ, you're not alone. He's felt like that, too. He's been humiliated, too. But second, Jesus' humiliation actually covers your humiliation. It covers your embarrassment. It covers your shame. You know, have you ever had your embarrassment covered before? And so, you know, usually embarrassment and humiliation flows from someone else or many people seeing you do something that's humiliating. And so, you know, imagine you do something embarrassing, like let's say you knock over a vase at someone's house party and it breaks. And it makes a, a loud crashing sound and everyone at the party turns to see who did it. But right before they see that it was you that knocked the vase over, a friend steps closer to the vase and says, sorry guys, I'm so clumsy. And they make everyone think that they broke the vase and not you They take the embarrassment instead of you taking the embarrassment. They're humiliated instead of you being humiliated. And that'd be a pretty good friend, right? Well, that's what Jesus does for us. We've all done things that are embarrassing and humiliating. We've all done things that are downright shameful in God's sight. But what Jesus has done by dying on the cross is put himself between God's eyes and us. And so when God looks to see who knocked over the proverbial vase, he sees it as if Jesus broke it and not you. He covers for you. Jesus takes on the shame and the embarrassment and the humiliation, and you don't. He covers for you. He's your friend. He's the best friend that anyone could have. I mean, think of the most shameful thing you've ever done in your life. Who of your friends would cover for you and take the blame for it? None of them, right? But Jesus does that for you. Jesus steps in and takes the shame that you could not get rid of. And no one else would dare take from you. But Jesus does because he loves you that much. A beautiful irony of it all, though, is that in God's kingdom those who humiliate themselves for the sake of others, those who humiliate themselves are actually exalted in God's kingdom. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, because he didn't count equality with a thing to be grasped, because he emptied himself, because he took the form of a servant, because he was born in the likeness of men, because he died on a cross, because Jesus humiliated himself, what did God do? God exalted him. He exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that's above all names because Jesus humiliated himself. Jesus takes on our humiliation and what happens? It's destroyed. It goes away and he is exalted. And if you're in Christ, if you rest on Christ for salvation, you're exalted with him you are also exalted. How God sees Jesus is how God sees you because you're united to Jesus now. Embarrassing, humiliating, shameful you gets exalted in God's sight because of Jesus. If we return to Joseph's story, continuing as a type of Christ, uh, Joseph also is eventually exalted. As I, I read to the kids after... Spending many years in prison, Joseph becomes known as a dream expert. And because of dreams he interpreted for fellow prisoners, uh, he eventually gets brought in to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh tells him the dream about the cows. Joseph interprets the dream and tells Pharaoh that there's a coming famine, but if you start saving food now, you can survive the famine. And this whole deal with Joseph pleases Pharaoh so much that he promotes Joseph. He exalts Joseph basically so high that he's Pharaoh's number two. He rules the entire land. The only thing that Pharaoh has that Joseph doesn't have is the throne. Joseph has been exalted from a falsely accused prisoner to second chariot in Egypt, governor of all the land from humiliation to exaltation. And it's actually because of that exaltation that Joseph ends up in a position, ironically, to help his brothers, the very ones who betrayed him and sold him into slavery to begin with, but not before testing them to see whether they are truly repentant. That takes us to our second point, repentance and forgiveness. In uh, Genesis 42, it says that there's a famine in the land, just like Joseph predicted uh, in his dream. There's a famine in the land, and Jacob and his sons need to secure food. And so Jacob sends 10 of his remaining 11 sons to Egypt, but he keeps the youngest, Benjamin, at home with him. And so the 10 brothers get to Egypt, and they're searching for grain, and who do they inquire with? Their brother Joseph. Only they don't recognize him. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize Joseph. And so Joseph treats them like they are strangers, and he's pretty harsh with them. He uh, treats them with suspicion. He asks them a bunch of questions about who they are. And the brothers answer, you know, we're 12 brothers, uh, the sons of a man in the land of Canaan, the promised land, uh, the sons of Jacob. Uh, Our youngest brother is with our father still, Benjamin, and one of our brothers is no more, referring to Joseph. And so Joseph begins to test his brothers. He says, okay, give me the money you brought, Take this grain back with you, but you need to leave one of your brothers with me, and you need to come back with your youngest brother so that I know you are telling me the truth about yourselves. And this little test begins to convict the brothers of their guilt. Uh, They're able to carry out this task, but the very fact that Joseph is asking them to begins to convict them. They they start to say to one another in their native tongue, the truth is we're guilty concerning one of our brothers. Um, Maybe there's a reckoning coming for his blood. And they think that Joseph doesn't understand them because they're speaking in their native language, but of course he does understand them because it's his native language also. But they, they go on their way. Uh, they leave one brother with Joseph, Simeon, and uh, when they're heading out, sneakily Joseph has the money that they paid for the grain put back with their things. And so later on, as they're on their way home, they discover that they still have the money that they were supposed to pay to Joseph. And they're terrified because it's going to look like they stole that money. But their brother Simeon is still in Egypt. And to rescue him, they're going to have to go back to Egypt where they're going to be accused of being thieves facing possible imprisonment or maybe even death. And so Joseph is testing them to see if they will risk their own well-being to save their brother Simeon or if they'll just take the money and run like they did with Joseph. Well, back in Canaan, although it takes some convincing, Jacob finally relents and lets the brothers take Benjamin to Egypt with them. But only after Judah pledges to look after Benjamin. He says that if he does not bring Benjamin back, then Judah will bear the blame forever. And so they head out, and they eventually arrive in Egypt, and they stand before Joseph, and they have Benjamin with him, and they're afraid because they think that they're going to be accused of stealing the money. And so they quickly show that they've brought the money back, and they don't know how it was put back in their things. And Joseph's servant tells them that they don't need to be afraid. God must have put that money there. We received the money from you. So the brothers you know, sigh this huge sigh of relief, Their brother Simeon is returned to them. And when Joseph sees all of his brothers together, what does he do? He weeps. Joseph weeps at the sight of his 11 brothers. And this is the first clue that this whole series of tests that Joseph is putting his brothers through is not about revenge. It's not about getting even. Joseph weeps when he sees 11 brothers because Joseph hopes that his brothers pass these tests. Joseph wants his brothers to prove their repentance. Joseph wants to be reconciled. This is a good point in the story to pause and consider our own relationship with repentance and forgiveness. The story of Joseph is instructive for us. And we're going to see a few more tests that Joseph puts his brothers through, but notice two things now. The first is that forgiveness was not automatic. It wasn't immediate, It wasn't unconditional. Joseph doesn't immediately forgive his brothers just because they show up in need. He tests them. He looks to see if they're truly repentant for the awful things that they did to him. You know, they sold him into slavery. They lied to their father saying he was dead. Those are massive offenses, horrible, horrible sins. And so before Joseph will forgive them, he first tests to see if they're truly repentant for what they've done and that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, that may sound a little bit odd to some of you, but forgiveness in the Bible is never automatic. It's never immediate. It's never unconditional. You know, we're instructed to forgive as God forgives, but how does God forgive? God does not forgive automatically, immediately, or unconditionally. God forgives those who repent. You've probably heard me say in the liturgy of the worship service that God, you promise to freely forgive all who repent and turn back to you. I don't say, God, you promise to freely forgive all. I say, you promise to freely forgive those who repent. And so, likewise, while we should always be willing to offer forgiveness should someone repent, we don't actually complete that process of forgiving someone until they repent. And I don't, don't have time to get into all the, the nuances and the numerous situations we may have to apply this in, but If you overlook this need to test for repentance, you open up the door to all sorts of ongoing abuse, right? There can be a way of talking about forgiveness that isn't biblical, and it lets abusers continue to abuse. So we must be wise and test for repentance like Joseph did. So That's the first thing to notice about Joseph's tests— repentance must precede forgiveness. That's how it works between us and God, and that's how it works between us and anyone else. Repentance must be present for there to be forgiveness and reconciliation. But second, we should desire repentance and reconciliation. And in a fallen world with finite and faltering and fragile people, it may not be possible sometimes, but we still must desire repentance and reconciliation. You know, even though Joseph is putting his brothers through these tests to see if they're repentant, he wants them to pass the tests. He wants them to show themselves to be repentant. He wants to forgive them. He wants to be reconciled with them. That's why he weeps the moment he sees them all back together bringing Benjamin. It's that first glimmer of hope for Joseph that they might, in fact, prove themselves to be repentant. And so Joseph weeps because he wants them to pass the tests. He wants them to repent of the awful sins they committed against him so that he can forgive them and they can be reconciled. And so you have to ask yourself, when someone sins against you, when a friend sins against you, when a spouse sins against you, when your parents sin against you, when your kids sin against you, when someone at church Sins against you, do you in your heart of hearts desire that they would repent so that you can forgive them and be reconciled? Or do you kind of hope that they fail? Do you kind of hope that you can always hold this offense against them? Do you hope that you can bring it up again and again and again in the future, in a sense, kind of justify your superiority over them? It would have been very easy for Joseph to make these tests impossible and effectively shut the door to any hope of forgiveness and reconciliation, just throw his brothers in prison, maybe have them killed. But Joseph doesn't do that, and we must not either. Joseph's story and many other passages about forgiveness and reconciliation show us that even though we should ensure that someone is truly repentant before proceeding with forgiveness and reconciliation— We should always be prepared to offer forgiveness. We should hope for it. We should long for it. We should sincerely desire for there to be reconciliation in our relationships. You know, look how much God has worked to convince you to repent, to convince you to receive forgiveness, to convince you to be reconciled to him. Look how hard God has worked with you. And as God has forgiven you, then you also must forgive in the same way. back to Joseph and his brothers. After Joseph steps out to weep, he rejoins the brothers, and they feast together. And Joseph gives Benjamin, the younger brother, a portion of food and wine that is five times bigger than the rest of the brothers. And it's, again, another small test to see how his brothers will respond, because, remember earlier, when Joseph got special treatment, it set his brothers off. Will Benjamin's special treatment also set them off. It doesn't. They are just happy to be together again. They eat, they drink, and they're married together as brothers. And so Joseph sends them back to Canaan, back to Jacob with the grain that they purchased. And uh, he has one more test in store for them, though. He has one of his stewards plant Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then once they're a little bit of the way home, He sends that servant to chase after them and find the silver cup and uh, accuse them of burglary. And so when that servant gets up to the brothers, they, of course, are certain that none of them have it. And so they all come to an agreement with the servant. If any of us has the silver cup, he'll go back with you as a slave. The rest of us will go home innocent. And so the steward begins checking all their bags one by one, from oldest to youngest, and he gets to the very last bag, the youngest's bag, Benjamin's bag, and the cup is in there. The son that Judah promised he would ensure was brought back to Jacob now has to go be a servant in Egypt. It's a disaster. But this time, Judah is not going to let that happen. We didn't get into the details when I was reading with the kids, but Judah was the brother who led the charge initially in humiliating Joseph, throwing him into a pit, selling him into slavery. At one point, Judah was actually suggesting that they just kill Joseph. That same Judah who so hated Joseph now has changed, and he wants to figure out what he can do to save Benjamin from Joseph's fate. What does Judah do? They all go back to Joseph, and Judah says, take me. Let Benjamin go and take me. I want to put myself in his place. And it's a substitution. Treat me how my brother deserves to be treated. Let the punishment that he deserves fall upon me, and let him go free. Very Christ-like, right? And of course, this finally and completely melts Joseph's heart, and he weeps again. He knows that his brothers are totally repentant. He can fully forgive them. They can be reconciled. And so he finally reveals that he's not some random Egyptian governor. He's Joseph. He's their brother, the one that they sold into slavery, the one that they told their father was dead, and that they have nothing to be afraid of anymore because he forgives them. And the brothers all hug each other, they kiss each other, they weep, and they begin talking like brothers again. Jacob's 12 sons are 12 brothers once again. And as you know from uh, last week's sermon about Jacob, uh, Jacob eventually got his son back. He got Joseph back. Jacob was brought to join the brothers in Egypt, and he saw the face of his son that he never expected to see the face of again. Because Joseph genuinely desired his brother's repentance and through testing found out that they truly were repentant. He forgave them. They were reconciled. They were brothers once again. And they would be brothers for the rest of their lives, living together in Egypt. That brings us to our final point, death and hope. Have you ever thought about where you want to be buried when you die? You ever thought about that? Good. Uh, maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. I wouldn't be surprised if you have not thought about that yet, because we don't really like to think about death. You know, if uh, but if I may take a page out of the book of Ecclesiastes again and remind you, you are going to die one day, and those who continue on living after you will have to do something with your remains. And so, where do you want to be buried when you die? In a specific cemetery near specific. People in a specific city, in a specific state, a specific country, where? Well, we're finally back to our original Genesis 50 passage. In our passage, Joseph leaves instructions for where he wants to be buried and what he wants his uh, family to, to do with his remains after he dies. Genesis 50, 24 through 25 says, as Joseph speaking, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph is telling them that even though he's going to die in Egypt, that's not where he wants his final resting place for his bones to be. He wants his bones to be moved from Egypt to the promised land eventually. You know, Abraham is buried in the promised land, Isaac is buried in the promised land, Jacob died, and then they carried him to bury him in the promised land. And so Joseph now says, take my bones to the promised land. And then he dies, and they embalm him and uh, put him in a coffin in Egypt. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. That's the last word in Genesis, in Egypt. And it's, you know, whetting our appetite for what's going to happen in Egypt Uh, because we know, of course, the next book of the Bible is the Exodus from Egypt. But you see, because of the famine, Jacob and his sons were forced to come to Egypt and to find what they needed to live there. And they remained there, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied there, and they began to fill the land. Not the promised land, but the land of Egypt. And eventually, they, became, they were perceived as a threat by a later pharaoh. And so that later pharaoh began to oppress the descendants of Joseph. He made them slaves in Egypt. But Joseph, you know, when he dies, he says something by faith that Hebrews 11 highlights. Hebrews eleven twenty two, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph says in Genesis 50, I'm about to die, but one day God is going to visit you. And that phrase, God will visit you, isn't like stop by and say hello. Uh, For God to visit you means that God's going to change your fortunes. God is going to visit you, Joseph says, and he's going to bring you up out of this land, out of Egypt, and he's going to take you to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's going to take you back to the promised land. And when he does, I want you to take my bones with you. I want you to take my bones back to the promised land. You know, generations, this is generations before the Exodus, and Joseph is making mention of this future Exodus. It's a, a prophecy, something that Joseph says by faith. And it's interesting because of all the patriarchs in Genesis. Joseph is easily the most positively portrayed one. He's not perfect, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are all over the place. They're kind of a mess sometimes. Uh, They demonstrate faith sometimes, but there are tons of stories of their mess-ups. The only time that Joseph is really portrayed negatively is when he's a 17-year-old, and he tells his family about this dream where they all bow down before him, which wasn't very tactful, but also came true. That's exactly what happened. But despite Joseph's near-perfect portrayal in Genesis, he doesn't really get mentioned in the patriarchal formula later on in Scripture. It's always just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mentioned, actually, for the first time, all three of them in our Genesis 50 passage, but repeated throughout Scripture. You'll, you'll read all the time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But no Joseph. And it's, it's also interesting that Joseph isn't going to be buried right away in the promised land. As a contrast, you know, Jacob, who also came to Egypt, when he died, they just took him right away to bury him in the promised land, but not when Joseph dies. His bones are going to stay in Egypt. When he dies, his bones are going to stay with his people. So what is going on here with Joseph? Why is he not in this patriarchal formula? Why didn't they just bury him in the promised land right away? What is going on with Joseph? Well, a couple things. You know, first, it's a a testament to his faith. It's a testament to his hope. I mean, what makes death so scary is that many people feel like they don't know what's going to happen after. Right? If you want to shut down a conversation with your non-believing friends, ask a group of them what they think happens when you die. Right? Like, no one wants to think about that. No one wants to talk about that. But not Joseph. Joseph. He has hope as he faces his death. He is so sure that God will bring his people into the promised land as he promised that he would. Joseph is so sure that he has so much faith in that, so much hope in that, that he says, there's no need for me to journey back to the promised land now and die. There's no need for you to take my bones there right away for burial. Just hold on to my bones. And when God surely brings his people back to the promised land, take my bones too. And you can bury them then because I know that one day I'm going to wake up from death and I will be waking up in the promised land. Second, you know, there's just something special about Joseph. All the patriarchs in some ways prefigure Christ, but Joseph maybe prefigures Christ more than, more than all of them. He prefigures Christ in his humiliation. Joseph prefigures Christ in his exaltation. He prefigures Christ in his forgiveness of those who betrayed him. And he prefigures, prefigures Christ in one more way. He prefigures Christ with his presence. You know what I mean by that? Joseph makes sure that he is present with his people. His bones are to stay with them until they get back to the promised land, and that's exactly what happens. Now, I don't know if you've ever caught these details in the Exodus story, but you know, right before the Exodus... Exodus 13, 19, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear. And then later on, when the people finally make it to the promised land in Joshua, Joshua 24, 32, it says, and for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the land that Jacob bought. Joseph eventually Made it. He journeyed with his people through oppression, across the Red Sea, in the wilderness, and eventually into the Promised Land. The bones of Joseph never left his people. Just like Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, never leaves his people. Joseph wanted to be with his people just like Jesus wants to be with his people. You know, Jesus exposed himself to the oppression of this fallen world. Jesus resisted temptation in the wilderness. Jesus made it possible for us to cross the Red Sea of our sin and its consequences. And Jesus is leading us now into the promised land, into life everlasting, into heaven. But unlike Joseph, whose presence was limited to his bones, Jesus is as present with us as possible. When he died, he didn't stay dead. He resurrected. And he sent his spirit upon us so that we are forever united with him. You know what that means, right? When Jesus was on the cross, there was a thief next to him. He was about to die. And in the last minutes of his life, he realized how wrong he had been about everything. And that Jesus truly was the son of God, the way of salvation. And he cried out in desperation, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't think that he's going to be there. But Jesus, when you're there, can you remember me? And how does Jesus reply? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I won't have to just remember you because you will be with me in paradise. What happens when you die? You go to be with Jesus. Your soul is made perfect. You pass into glory, into the presence of Christ, and you just wait for the final resurrection when your bones and Joseph's bones are raised up in the promised land, and your entire being is made perfect in full enjoyment of God for the rest of eternity. You have hope as you face your death. It's not the end for you. It's just a step along the way, just like it was for Joseph. You know, by faith in hope, death is no longer something we have to fear. It's just a step toward the promised land. And just like Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he says to you, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. That's our Savior. He's with us now. He's with us till the end. Joseph is a prefiguring of Christ who goes with his people from Humiliation to exaltation, who forgives those who repent and who gives us hope as we face our death. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have made a way for us to leave behind our humiliation, to leave behind our sin, to leave behind death and find hope in the life to come. Father, we pray that these realities would sink into our hearts, that they would become more real every day to us. Father, fill us with your Spirit. Help us to trust that you will eliminate our humiliation. Give us the strength to forgive others as you have forgiven us, and give us the strength to face our death with hope. Pray this in your name. Amen.